1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Brett Lidbury about funding research into ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. But first up, here's the news about the Australian government changing the way it funds ME CFS research. No money for ME. Questions in the Australian Senate revealed that since 2000, no money has been spent investigating treatment for myalgic encephalomyelitis and chronic fatigue syndrome. One of the best-known symptoms of ME-CFS is that people suffer from symptoms of exhaustion and pain after exercise. It makes them sicker. Professor Andrew Lloyd and Professor Ian Hickey have been prominent in CFS research in Australia, And they promote Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, CBT, and Graded Exercise Therapy, GET, as treatments for ME-CFS. The latest research shows strongly that forcing people with ME-CFS to exercise hurts them by forcing them to do the one thing known to cause post-exertional malaise, the main diagnostic symptom for the illness. A recent study... Was myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome patients' reports of symptom changes following cognitive behavioural therapy, graded exercise therapy and pacing treatments. Analysis of a primary survey compared with secondary surveys, which was published in August 2017 in the Journal of Health Psychology. People with ME-CFS are refused for the National Disability Insurance Scheme because they haven't tried the graded exercise therapy. In a Senate estimates hearing in 2016, Senator Scott Ludlam asked the Medical Health and Research Council how much they spend on ME and CFS research, and how much of that goes towards researching cognitive behavioural therapy, and how much went towards researching graded exercise therapy. The head of the Medical Health and Research Council reported that $1.6 million had been spent. On MECFS research since the year 2000 on three projects. Professor Hickey was given half a million dollars in 2001 for what was published in 2006 as the Dubbo study. Professor Hickey's press release was headlined Hit and Run Injury to the Brain, which became when he was interviewed Brain Injury Found to Cause Crank Fatigue Syndrome. Brain injury was not part of the paper's research conclusions, and no brain imaging was performed in the research. The study was simply to confirm the extremely well established fact that some people get MECFS after an infection. The head of the NHMRC reported that $58,000 was spent on a Gulf War syndrome study in 2003. There's no suggestion that people diagnosed with MECFS who didn't serve in the Gulf War had Gulf War syndrome, although many of the symptoms were similar. A million dollars went to Professor Andrew Lloyd from 2008 to 2017 for fellowships for CFS research. Professor Lloyd admitted that he had spent 90% of his million dollars on researching a completely different disease, hepatitis C. I recommend the book Osler's Web by Hilary Johnson for more stories of ME-CFS research funds that were spent on other diseases. The head of the National Health and Medical Research Council admitted that none of this research has investigated or recommended these treatments that Professor Hickey and Professor Lloyd have emphasised. Senator Ludlam asked the Health Minister Fiona Nash for what steps she suggests to help the quarter of a million people with CFS and ME. She took the question on notice. The health department was asked why there was no federal funding for support of people with the condition, advice about medical treatments, training of medical and allied health staff, or dissemination of chronic fatigue syndrome information. The question was taken on notice. A year later in 2017, Senator Ludlam came back for the answers. The National Health and Medical Research Council, NHMRC, has set up an MECFS advisory panel to consult with the Australian Department of Health and the American National Institutes of Health for a targeted call for research. They allocated three to five million dollars over three to five years to determine guidelines for funding research into MECFS. I hope that this larger amount of money to develop targeted calls for research leads to a better understanding of MECFS, the development of diagnostic tests and treatments, and better support for people with the illness. The NHMRC appointed Professor Andrew Lloyd to the panel, which is expected to meet in a few weeks and report on their findings by the end of 2018. Professor Lloyd still promotes graded exercise therapy. Senator Ludlam resigned from the Senate when he discovered he had dual citizenship with New Zealand, which is forbidden in the Australian Constitution. People with MECFS lost their only Senate advocate. In the US this year, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, has published fresh guidelines for diagnosis and care of people with ME-CFS. One of the key care strategies recommended is pacing, teaching people to listen to their body so they know when to rest instead of pushing through the exhaustion. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Ten years ago, I spoke with Dr. Stephen Graves, Director of the Hunter Area Pathology Service and the Australian Rickettsial Reference Laboratory. I began by asking him to explain... What is myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome?
0: Essentially chronic fatigue syndrome is a disease that can't really be diagnosed with any tests. And it's a clinical diagnosis where people have a period of fatigue that exceeds six months. So six months is taken as the cutoff point. And so usually something happens to them, they get unwell and they have this fatigue that goes on beyond six months. Now, in some cases, it can go on for nine, twelve months. In other patients, it can go on for years, and occasionally it can actually go on for decades. So it's a very diverse disease with a lot of other features associated with it. Some patients have other symptoms, but the, the thing that's Common to all of them is this fatigue ability. People don't have any energy. They can't do their normal work. They can't do their normal social activities. And if you test their muscle activity, if you actually take them into a laboratory and get them to do an exercise involving muscular activity, they cannot do it as well as normal people of that age and sex. So there are biological or biomedical markers for this disease. But the main one is this chronic fatigue that just goes on and just doesn't seem to get better for these poor people.
1: And it's not just a physical fatigue, is it? It's also an intellectual and emotional that's
0: fatigue. Right. There are other, the other sort of things that go with it are what's called a brain fog, where people feel they can't function properly. Now, the reason for that is probably that their blood pressure is not working properly and they're not getting adequate brain circulation of blood. And so that's probably the main thing there. But you're right, it can be, it can be an emotional thing as well. There can be a tiredness where people don't sleep well. There can be pain associated with the chronic fatigue syndrome. Different pressure points on the body can cause pain. So there's a number of different subgroups. In fact, one of the people at the conference, uh, Professor Jonathan Kerr, has divided chronic fatigue syndrome into seven different groups based on molecular studies of which parts of their DNA are malfunctioning. And so he's actually got these seven groups based on different types of illnesses that they've got. So it's not one illness, it's not like measles or it's not like a broken limb or something like that. It's a lot more complicated, it's heterogeneous really.
1: So there's a lot of different paths, I think, that can lead someone into the symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome. It seems to be an illness that has more than one cause.
0: Oh, yes, most definitely. It's like, I use the word fever or high temperature. Now, you say someone's got a fever or a high temperature, but we know very well that there are dozens and dozens of different causes why someone might have a high temperature So it's the same with this disease. There are probably many, many different precipitating factors. Now, one of the most important precipitating factors that we believe is infection, and different types of microorganisms seem to be responsible for these infections. So infection is one... Another seems to be certain chemicals, chemical exposures that can cause people to also develop this type of uh, syndrome. So, yes, the fatigue is the common end pathway of a whole variety of what you might call environmental stimuli that are are affecting a person. And it's not anyone. It's a person with a, a particular genetic predisposition. So it's like a disease that... You and I might be exposed to exactly the same virus, for example. I'm predisposed and get the chronic fatigue as a a sequelae of the infection. You're not genetically predisposed. You get an acute infection, you get over it, and you're back to normal again. So it's a two-component disease. There's a genetic susceptibility, which is being shown now by the work of several people. So there's a genetic component to the illness. And so certain people are more susceptible than others, and that's being shown by the work of Kerr, looking at the genes of these people. And then there's an environmental stimulus, which in many cases appears to be an infection. And our work suggests that it could be a Q fever organism or rickettsial disease that could be the precipitant infection.
1: What about rickettsia? What's that?
0: Well, rickettsia are are carried by ticks, mainly. And in Australia, the tick that, that can cause this is probably a uh, tick that's found on bush animals, but it also likes biting people as well. So we've had a few examples of people who've been bitten by these ticks and have actually developed an illness and gone on to get a fatigue-like process. Q fever, on the other hand, although it is transmitted by ticks, most people get it as an aerosolised infection when, when animals kick up dust and dirt and things like that, and the microorganism is in the dust and people inhale it. So, uh, but that, that's also an intracellular bacterium.
1: And I believe there's something a little odd going on with the immune systems of people with chronic fatigue
0: syndrome. Most definitely. Just about everybody who's looked at these people finds an abnormality in their immune system. You see, the immune system is designed to deal with infection. When someone is exposed to a microorganism, the immune system essentially is meant to destroy it process of destroying it the patient gets sick for a little while it's an acute illness so when you get exposed to influenza virus you, you get the flu and you go, go to bed you're sick you've got a fever you're very fatigued your muscles ache and all the rest of it and that's quite normal and once the once your immune system has destroyed that microorganism by switching on and doing certain things it's meant to go back to normal now in patients with chronic fatigue syndrome the feeling is that the immune system doesn't go back to normal properly, and it continues along at an elevated rate. It's what we call pro-inflammatory cytokines are being produced by an immune system, and nearly everyone that's looked at these chronic fatigue syndrome patients have found uh, raised pro-inflammatory cytokines, and these are probably what's what are making the patient feel unwell.
1: Right, and I believe there's two systems in the immune system. Is it Th1 and Th2?
0: Oh, that's getting very technical now. You've certainly done your homework there. The TH1 system is essentially the the component of the system that destroys microorganisms that are infecting humans, and in the process of destroying them, you get an inflammatory response. The TH2 system tends to be a system that doesn't actually destroy the organism, the invading microorganism, but allows it to persist and establishes a chronic infection. and So you get a host-parasite relationship that is, allows the parasite or the microorganism to persist and the host to persist also. It's a sort of balance between the immune system of the patient and the survival of the microorganism. So patients that have got a Th2 response to microorganism are more likely to get chronic fatigue syndrome than someone who's got a Th1 response. This, the T refers to the T lymphocytes. Uh, the, and the helper T lymphocytes and how they deal with these invading microorganisms.
1: That was an excerpt of my interview with Dr Stephen Graves about chronic fatigue syndrome back in 2008. You can listen to the full interview on the website. In 2018, Brett Libre is an Associate Professor with the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health in the Research School of Population Health at the Australian National University. He's researching myalgic encephalomyelitis and chronic fatigue syndrome. I met Brett at a Millions Missing World MECFS Awareness Day event. I spoke to him by Skype and continue by asking him, isn't it a problem that government bureaucrats don't understand MECFS when people apply for the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the Disability Support Pension?
3: That's what patients and their families are telling me. I, I do. Um, I'm very lucky as a, somebody who lives in the ivory tower, mostly to get out and, and meet you know people who need our help. You know, as as uh, as researchers and academics. And I can't say I've spoken to everybody, but a consistent theme in the last few weeks, given you know the focus recently on the Millions Missing Day. And, of course, I was very lucky to be invited to Sydney to participate in that. But talking to families and and patients, the consistent thing was, in general, NDIS is a great thing. However, now that we have that, what I had before is gone, and now I've got nothing. And when questioned more about, well, what's the reason for that? You're clearly incapacitated or, you know, you, you can't work. What's going on is the answer seems to be, well, if you've just got somebody in a bureaucratic position and they just look at the guidelines or look at information, it does appear that there is a therapy available through graded exercise therapy, CBT. And what, of course, the bureaucrats don't understand is that's, you know, maybe 20 years ago or at some point it was all we had, but, you know, we've moved on and it's not as simple as that. And for most patients, uh, as I said earlier, that, that approach to therapy either does nothing or it may even make the symptoms worse. So we need to rethink it and and find other ways. So from someone making a decision in an office about who gets NDIS support, who doesn't, they'll just sort of say, well, our information is it'll go away. You won't be permanently disabled. And by the way, you know, you just need to do this treatment, go away. You know, we can't help you. So it's, of course, enormously distressing. So from that point of view, I mean, in the shorter to medium term, that's something we should address and get people the help they need.
1: Well, I think it goes beyond there being wrong information that the bureaucrats are accessing, telling them that graded exercise will cure everybody with CFS or they'll just get better naturally mm-hmm. when that's not most people's experience. It that's seems right. to be that there's a prejudice as well, possibly connected to the name, where people will joke about the fact that they're tired too, which they don't seem to do for things like multiple sclerosis anymore or any other sort of illness. And yes. you get that in the bureaucrats as well. They just say, oh, it's just chronic I know someone who recovered once and they're working full-time, so you can too
3: yeah i think you're quite right in some of the work we've done you can actually see a range again i'll just quickly digress i mean like anything the, the initial response is to look at it as just a, a monolithic sort of situation like it's me that's bang that's it and there's no variation you know we can actually see symptoms can go from mild moderate to severe and someone with mild symptoms you might see them out at work and think oh they're fine but what you don't know is they can only work maybe a day a week or two days maybe because they're too sick the rest of the time. They can actually do something. And, of course, severe people, you you, you won't see them. Like, they're missing, just like the millions missing idea that we that we uh, gathered for recently because they're in a dark room. They're photosensitive. They can't get out of bed. They can't move. They're very sick. And these prejudices, I mean, the concept of yuppie flu and, look, I'm tired too and all the rest of it, is is very disappointing and and must be very distressing, particularly for families and patients, because it it just displays ignorance. And, you know, if anybody, whether it's somebody in a government office, even without science training, if they just took a moment to delve in a bit deeper, they would find that there is some substance to it. So, unfortunately, prejudice is, is a barrier.
1: Well that's one of those things with the NDIS. So surely it should be your disabilities or incapacity rather than your diagnosis that determines how much help you get.
3: That's right. Absolutely. And again, you know, I'm not au fait with the, the fine details of the NDIS, but certainly we've got we call them research participants, so they're essentially patients who have volunteered to be part of our research. But we've had and routinely have people who have had M E C F S CFS, by whatever dish- definition you want to uh, use, for, you know, I think the longest is 40 years, someone who got sick in the 1970s, and other people 15, 20 years. Uh, of course, thinking of it as a spectrum, you might have more mild cases where people recover a bit, but not completely. But essentially, I think, from what I understand, and, and the clinicians would have a better idea, is if you've been sick for five years or more, it's probably unlikely you'll ever get back to what you were previously, so it is a disability you know and again there's definitions you know not having a disability what does that mean that you're working 35 hours a week you're doing this i mean there must be definition but by any standard sort of view that you and i would have in is that this person isn't living a full life and the degree of disability might change a little but you know these people for whatever reason you can't participate fully in life and some not at all because of the severity of the symptoms
1: my understanding is that the funding for medical research into ME-CFS in Australia is very, very low. And in most countries, it's very, very low. Yeah. That's is true. there any chance of that changing?
3: Well, what you say is quite true. It's just a personal hobby horse. I get very annoyed when people say, oh, Australia's lagging behind in this and that. Well, we're not. You know, we're actually quite a long way ahead in many ways of the way we, you know, we're a very sophisticated technologically advanced society. And uh, that cultural cringe just still irritates me. However, in, <laughs> to get to the point, in Australia, this funding situation isn't a case of lagging behind because it's the same everywhere. <laughs> so it's not to say that we're more ignorant or less caring because it's something we see worldwide. Now, what's happened fairly recently, which is a terrific initiative, is that the National Health and Medical Research Council has listened. Politicians have listened and they have appointed what I can see from what I understand, is a a very good board or a committee to really think hard about MECFs, how it should be funded, how much funding, and and basically put it on the map or put it on the table for the NHMRC as a genuine area of research interest. So that's to be applauded.
1: That's fantastic. And while we're on hopeful changes, how long do you think with all this research into biomarkers that's coming up, there's, there's your research and there's some other things happening as well, do you think it's far away before there might be a clinical test?
3: If things go really, really well, Ian, and what I mean by that is, and just a little bit of advertising here, um, thanks to the Judith J. Mason Foundation, where in the third or maybe the fourth year of a, uh, a validation study on activen A, B, and folistatin, I should mention too with the activens, what was interesting was activen B elevated, but activen A didn't, and neither did folistatin. So it's those three proteins together, sort of like a little panel. So those observations have been published and based on a pilot study that was run between 2011 and say 2014. Now, thanks to the funding from the Mason Foundation, we're in the final stages of a study, which is to validate in a separate population those observations with a larger cohort of participants. So hopefully at the end of this trial and this validation research, we can say we've seen it probably won't be exactly the same, but we we can see this, the same base of properties of of the active and markers. And once we have that, of course, we can be more confident about then taking it to the next step and offering it as a test, you know, given all the regulations and other things that need to, and, and research and development needs to go with it to take it out to the market. The other thing that's interesting is, is through my connections in the Netherlands, I actually have some samples too from uh, the Netherlands of uh, CFS cohorts. And of course, if we can see the same sort of pattern in active and responses, in a population a long way from Australia, I mean that would really be very exciting. But again, in that cautious sort of way that we work, we make an observation, we report it. But what comes after that is we need then need to validate that result, so that is tested again, a larger sample, a different set of people, and if we can get the same observations, uh, we're well on the way. So if everything goes perfectly well, you know, and I hate saying this because people talk about five to ten years, but you know. As a kit, if we could get an industry sponsor, which um, you know, isn't out of the ordinary, you know, we might have something in the next few years, but that's assuming everything goes very well in terms of the validation studies. Thanks for the opportunity. It was great to meet you in Sydney as well. And I think, yeah, just, just to everybody out there, whether you know someone with ME CFS or not, it is real. People are sick. One of the things that really stands out about people I know with ME CFS is they haven't given up. They really want to get better. They, they really say, look, you know, I feel terrible, but I want to go back to my old life. So they're incredibly motivated and need your support and understanding. I mean, just by showing a bit of interest and sympathy towards people can be pure gold. I mean, it doesn't have to be a pill, but just some understanding, support of people and their families can be one of the best things you can do. And, and I think keep an eye on this space. Uh, we've got a lot of really excellent researchers. Australia has brilliant researchers in this space who are working very hard and very creatively on this problem. And let's just keep the conversation going, including with, of course, NDIS and other things that we can do in the shorter term to help people with MECFS.
1: Well, Brett Libri, thank you very much.
3: My pleasure, Ian. Great to speak today.
1: That was the final part of my talks with Brett Libri, Associate Professor at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the Australian National University about ME-CFS- and fibromyalgia. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MBR in Nambucca Valley, three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and seven LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm subscribe to the podcast on the diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links photos and videos about this week's show if you enjoy this show you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
2: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man, knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits.